0: Praise God. that's good. Praise God. I wasn't ready to come up yet, Dan. You should have gone around again. I could have gone around again. Well, we're glad you're here at this point. Hopefully, you came to worship. Hopefully, you came to engage in a conversation with what God is saying through His Word, through, you know, your peers, through your, your relationships that you have in life. Um, I hope that's why you're here today, because um, we can come confidently knowing that He is speaking, and we can listen to what He has to say for our lives. So I want to take a moment this morning as we continue in worship, before you dismiss Blast kids, kind of some of the Blast kids are going, all right, we get to go to Blast. I want to take a moment and I wanted to talk to you for a second about something we've been doing in this series so far called the Great Date Experiment. Now, um, let me see if I can get that next slide. Cool. Did I do that? Is that me? Awesome. All right. So, um, so we've been telling you for a few weeks now, it's just really hard for me to get my head around because... I prepare a week ahead of time, but then our date was last week, and then we have people on the website who are doing dates from two weeks ago, so I'm trying to get all this straight in my head, but right now we are actually celebrating a great date two, okay, and I'm going to explain all this in a moment. Last week was great date three. This week will be great date four. Okay, that's how it's going to work. We have six all total. It's called the great date experiment, the big six, and I hope you've been participating in your own life. Now, um, if you haven't been, you may not know what you've been missing. Because what happened in week two, if you read your great date packet, and if you're a nerd like me, and you're like a rule follower, and you read every detail, is it said this at the end of the great date packet. It said, we hope you've had a great date. And if you have, you can visit our website, the greatdate great date, and tell us your story. And if you are picked as the best great date story, your next great date is on us. Huh? Who didn't read your packet? (laughs) Who read it and was like, I don't care? Who cares next date's on you? Well, I'm excited this morning because um, we have a winner, our first winner this week, okay? And I'm pretty excited about this. Now, I'm just going to tell a little bit of the story and uh, see if you can recognize maybe uh, who who this might be. I'm just going to read a few highlights. This is is stuff I thought was funny from the great date... uh, tale it says uh, we spent another entire day together on our great date having now this is my favorite quote having experienced the surprise steps from week one we were now more prepared to be spontaneous (laughs) what (laughs) having been shocked by the surprise of the week one we were now more prepared for spontaneity (laughs) all right somebody's struggling here a little bit i read the first step and it was hilarious i was ready As we drove through Highland, every light was green. If you know what this means, I'll read on. Uh, We ended up going to Fairview Heights for our great date, and we hit every red light along the way. And can you believe that no one honked at us? I told you last week, the great date challenge was, every red light, you had to kiss your wife or your husband until someone behind you honked. Okay, now get this. This is my favorite. It says, says, my husband didn't wait too long because he was Mr. Safety. But we had fun uh, setting together in our truck and snuggling and smooching. But I just kept thinking, why on earth are these people not honking at these old people making out in their truck? (laughs) (laughs) By far the best Great Date story. I want to show you some pictures. Anybody know who this is yet? Anybody besides the people who it is? Here's the picture from the Great Date. Yeah, Dave and Don Parker, why don't you come up here for a minute? Dave and Don won this week's great date for a couple reasons. They were one of the only couples that went and submitted. <laughs> that that, that minimizes your pool, okay? Your odds of winning have gone up. Um, and this is the picture of them in their truck. Hopefully not at a red light or at that point. <laughs> that was the G-rated, right? Yeah. Mr. Safety. <laughs> I'm probably about three shades of red. Right <laughs> It's going to be worth it. And this is my favorite, too. They took a picture not only of themselves, but what they saw. How beautiful is the sunset? That is so cool. That's so cool. Aww. So, without further ado. Thank you. Your next great date is on us. You're very welcome. Thanks for, thanks for participating. <laughs> You, too, could be the next winner on the Great Data Experiment, okay? So if you didn't do it last week, I'd encourage you today. We're going to talk about at the end of the service how today's works. Today's is a whole different thing. But uh, if you haven't done it yet, I can't encourage you enough to do it. It's been fun. I told someone this morning, I said, have you done it yet? And they said, no, we've been taking the packets. We haven't had time to do it yet. And I said, every time that Chris and I have done it, at some point in the day, it's been like, do we have to do this? You know, because it says things that are really uncomfortable for us. And every time we've done it, we've been like, that was really cool trying something new. That was really cool. So we know it's a stretch, but I hope you would take a chance and, uh, and uh, experience that yourselves. So at this point, just so you know where we're at in this whole process, we've been talking about um, this new series, Love and Marriage, for this is our fifth week in the series, um, which means we have two weeks left to go before we are, uh, we are on to our next series on um, parents or spiritual leaders. Now, and I hope that you come for that as well. Our goal this fall was to get into this idea of parents as spiritual leaders because I think that that's probably, Corey and I were talking about it at our staff meeting one week, and that's probably one of the biggest uh, areas of opportunity we have as followers of Jesus Christ is with our own family. And so we're going to talk about that, but we, we talked about it and we thought, you know, we got to um, uh, first things first here and talk about who we are in our relationship with God, who we are as husbands and wives, and then we talk about who we are as parents of our children and how we how we uh, communicate the gospel to them effectively. So um, I hope you've been journeying with us. We're about we're more than halfway done at this point with the series, but I kind of was wondering as you've you've been here, most you've been here for most of the series already. Has this been a very easy experience? I'm wondering. I mean, I'm wondering how many of us sit here every week and we go like, "Oh, that was no problem." I, I wonder how many of us that have tried the great date thing. Um, And we started to see some things come up in our marriage. We're like, oh, that's not very good. You know, I didn't see that coming. Uh, It's been a lot of fun, but the questions are very real. If you've not done the packets, they've been some, like, real questions. You know, some of these questions, when I started to see the pattern developing, I didn't think up this material, by the way. Uh, We got it from North Point uh, Church in uh, Alfreda, Georgia. But, you know, some of these questions were asking, like, um, what in your marriage is God pleased with? Or what in your marriage do you think God would like to change? See, know those are some questions as followers of Jesus we should be able to answer in our lives. What in my life do you think God is pleased with? And what in my life do you think that God would like to change? The Word tells us to be no longer conformed to the ways of the world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, right? Paul tells us to take every thought captive with the mind of Christ. We can be more like Jesus, our Savior. There's this expectation in Christianity that to come to know the Savior, it, it, to come to know Jesus as your Savior is a fundamental step, but it's the first step of a journey of a life with him. I told you before, we talk about things like um, predestination. The word actually means that God has taken a claim over your life, that Jesus himself has says, this one's mine. And see, that's trouble, because whenever he says, this one's mine, it means he's going to make you into who he's calling you to be. And our job as disciples, as learners of his, is to set at his feet and let him transform our lives, let him shape us. And so for that reason, I would hope that the series hasn't all been easy. I hope that in some, some of those days you go home and you're like, oh, man, that wasn't fun at all. Or you see stuff in your life in your date nights and you're like, why did I do that that way? Or why was that such a struggle for me? Maybe even after the fact, you enjoyed it and you wonder, well, why, you know, uh, You don't even want to have enjoyed it that much because there's something in you that feels like you shouldn't be enjoying it, you know? Here's the truth about our love and our marriage. And this is true for any relationship, by the way, because we call this series Love and Marriage, but it can be love and relationships, really, because it's any, the the, the principles we're teaching about marriage are true for any relationship you have. It's just that the marriage relationship is the most intimate relationship that we could have. You know what I mean? Because no one, even best friends, aren't in your business as much as your spouse is. And not many of your best friends are as different from you as your spouse is. And so, uh, someone recently said, I heard somebody say this week that um, that marriage is the ultimate uh, response of love. And they were talking about Jesus and the church, and uh, that marriage is the ultimate response of love, and that love is the end of marriage, but that's where it starts and finishes. Love meaning the decision to give to consider others more important than yourself, okay? And so these are the things we've been talking about, and it's kind of heavy stuff, but the reason that I think we, it can be hard and probably ought to be hard is because the truth is this. At its very root, the reason that marriage is so hard is because it's spiritual warfare. We talked about how in the beginning in Genesis that God had this plan that husbands, that, that men would leave their father and mother and cleave to their wife, and they become one flesh. You see, that's something that God ordained And then what happens is, in in the fall, Satan screws things up. We screw things up with Satan's help. We all work together against God, and things are broken. And so what happens is that the marriage becomes a battleground for spiritual things. And so there are days where it's fantastic, and there are days where it's utterly, completely impossible, it seems, because what we're dealing with here is a spiritual battle in our lives. So I'm going to open uh, today, as we always do, in prayer. And then we're going to walk through some, some, uh, some thoughts this week about um, how we can actually recognize what God is doing in our, in our relationships and in our marriages in particular, and, and um, how uniquely how he's called each person into that relationship. Okay? But join me in prayer first and foremost. Father God, today we've come into your house singing praises to you, singing songs about who you are and how awesome you are and how you're transforming our lives. We love you so much because you loved us first. We can make no claim that we went out on our own and found you, but that we were wandering, we were lost, we were broken, we were hurting, and you came and you picked us up and healed us. And in this act of love, we've come today to respond to you, to, to know more about you, to do what our song we just sang said and give you our heart, give you everything that we have that we could be utterly transformed by your gospel because we know that there's brokenness inside and we know that there's messes and there's sin and we need that fixed and we can't fix it without you. So today, as we come into your word and your house, we rely upon you completely. We rely upon your Holy Spirit to speak to our souls, to heal us and to rebuke us and to call us forward into the men and women that you've made us to be. We pray this prayer in the power and name of Jesus Christ, who's not only saving us, but who's conforming us to your image. I give you praise for that in his name. Amen. So we're going to do some, a little bit of work today, and I hope you came ready to do work. I know a lot of times you go, oh, I just came you know, to church, and I, I wanted to sit and watch and see. I hope that today you came to dig in a little bit, because we're going to dig in together uh, this morning, and I hope you'll do that with me. Um, but the first thing that we've been talking about in all of these this series is having God-oriented marriage or God-oriented relationship. And, and that's nothing more than quite simply, you know, we say God-orientation. We talked last week about how um, God, that, that uh, Jesus says that God's the one that binds us together in relationship and binds us together in marriage. He puts the yoke on us, right? He hooks us up, literally, one to the other. And so when we start to see our lives that way, we begin to see that God is at the center of it. Now, I want to stand this morning and tell you, I didn't always believe that was true, that God was at the center of my marriage. You know, I thought this was something I'd done pretty good with, you know. But over time, I've realized and maybe that's where you are in your life. You're like, no, I got this. This was my choice. But you know what? God is in there working, in the middle. And scripture tells us that that's true. And so our goal here is to have God-oriented marriages, to recognize that God is binding us together, and therefore to ask questions we talked about last week, like, you know, why, what are you doing here, God? Whenever it's, you know, rubbing you wrong, when things aren't working the way you think they ought to, we can go to God and say, what are you doing in this situation? Where are you working in our marriage, our relationship? So we're trying to become more God-oriented in our marriages. And and, uh, so we're going to walk through some ways that this is true, that that we can see this in our own lives. And and the first way is this, that in God-oriented marriages or God-centered marriages, you and I can celebrate our differences. Now, this is going to be kind of the theme for the day, but you'll see how we're going to have to walk around this to get to the the, the place of acceptance of one another, but to really celebrate our differences. And what we're going to look at together this morning is scripture from 1 Corinthians um, 1 Corinthians 12, verses 12 through 26. Now, this is in page 797, if you didn't bring a Bible. I hope you'll bring your own Bible when we come to worship, because this is where we do our work, is in the Word to to hear from God and see what God is saying to us. You don't have to argue with human beings when you read the Word of God yourself, because you can see what it says. God makes it plain for everyone to see. And this is what Paul writes to the church in Corinth. Now, I will say at the beginning, I'll say it probably a couple times during this. This letter is written to the church in Corinth, okay? And so we're talking about having God-oriented marriage. We're talking about husbands and wives who are bound to Jesus Christ, who know him as Lord and Savior. And when Paul writes this, he writes it to the church. But I would say that, some, that because it's written to the whole church doesn't mean it's not true for two people in the big C church, meaning husband and wife, all right? And so the same thing is true in the big church is true for our marriages. Listen to what the word says this morning. The body is a unit, though it is made up of many parts, and though all of its parts are many, they form but one body. Now this can already sound to you like the two will become one, what? Flesh, sarks, one flesh. So it is with Christ, Paul says, because we were all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and we were all given one spirit to drink. We've been talking about that for a while, right? Being filled with the Holy Spirit of God. Now, the body is not made up of one part, but many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not, for that reason, cease to be part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not, for that reason, cease to be part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? And so what he's saying is that even in our lives, that when we see one another as being different than ourselves, and we can easily start to chat, to, to throw one another out and say, well, you're not like me, so you don't make sense. You don't belong here. You don't fit in around here. He's saying even if we were to say that to one another, it doesn't mean that the other person isn't still part of the body, isn't still part of what God is doing among us. He even goes on, you can see there in verses 16 and 17, to say that if it weren't for that other part, you would be less capable to live life. Isn't it interesting that what Paul uses here is our five senses realm, right? He uses this stuff that we can all relate to. And he's saying, you know, if all were ears, how could we smell? Now, this might sound, I don't know, like, well, how does it, you know, we talk about marriage, right? But here's the truth, that on our marriages, we begin to realize very quickly after we're married, usually about the first year, right? This person is nothing like me, right? And you can start to ask that question about, did I make a mistake, right? If you believe that God was orienting your marriage, you could say, did God make a mistake? Because we're nothing alike. I hope you're a person of prayer because in that time, you can go to God and you can say, what's going on here? I hope that the words from 1 Corinthians make sense to you. That if you were all ears, how could you smell, you see? If you were all eyes, how could you hear? Even if you don't think, and he's gonna, we're going to read on, but even if you don't think the other part is necessary, it's probably more necessary because you don't understand its value. In verse 18, but in fact, God has arranged the parts of the body. Listen, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts but one body. Now you see, the two will be one flesh. You see what's starting to happen here is there's this story, uh, this continuing narrative of how we're being made more together than apart. I'll remind you again, this is true for the whole church. So that means it's true for all your relationships, your God-related relationships, right? All of our godly relationships with one another. This affects that we become more together than any one of us is apart that although we are complete in Jesus Christ, somehow together we become more, more able to see, hear, smell, taste, and know that God is good. So there's one body he says, verse verse 21, the eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you, and the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem weaker are actually indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty, while our presentable parts need no special treatment. But God has combined the members of the body and given greater honor to the parts that lacked it, the weaker parts, so that there would be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern one for the other. If one part suffers, every part suffers. If one is honored, every part rejoices with it. Now, that should sound a lot like marriage. We talked the last few weeks, I hope we've been trying to, we've been talking about this idea of, of, of respect and of love and of honoring one another. You see, and, 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 and this is what I think we don't understand We've been talking about these kind of crass jokes about marriage, you know, the old ball and chain or, you know, these kind of negative views of our spouse. But here's the joke, that whenever we're defiling our spouse, we're defiling ourself. That whenever we, we t- speak harshly or lightly or, or, or flippantly of our relationship, we don't honor our marriage, we don't honor ourselves. The joke is on us, you see. Now, here's the funny thing about celebrating differences, early in your relationship, this is what makes it so cool. Because I bet whenever you first met your husband or wife, or whenever you first meet your future husband or wife, or whenever you first met someone that is interesting to you, what drew you was they were so different. I've never met anyone like you, right? As a matter of fact, early in our relationship, we can actually, these things draw us in. that We, we, we can't, we can't, stand it. We, we spend hours together saying, really? Is that what you think? I've never met anybody that felt like you before. You know, you have picnics on the hill. I remember that so clearly in our relationship, and I just couldn't get enough information from Chris and her views on the world. Wow, you're so smart. you got so many answers. I, I, oh, if I could just spend my life with you, it would be so complete. And here's the funny thing. And some of you guys are already laughing because guess where this goes? The things that we find cute become culprits in our marriage later. Oh, really? I need to hear what you think about this again. I know what you think, okay? You know. Who, who died and made you king? You know, I mean, you start to get really ignorant with one another, right? You know, you just go, if I have to listen one more time, know what you think about that situation. I'm gonna, you know, you know Lord, what are you doing? <laughs> it's terrible. And it goes from this thing that we go, like, wow, that's so cool, to like, oh, you've got to be kidding me, you know? Do we, it's terrible, right? And we do it to one another. I mean, because it's not. I mean, it, you know, the truth is probably in my relationship. I'm probably on that receiving end, and we're insist just the mute button. She's like, "This isn't working." You like remote control so much? Come on, Lord, give me your remote control of my husband. There, but there's a reality that we have to find a way in our marriage if we're going to be successful to stop finding our differences, that allowing them to divide us. Do you understand? And I think one way we can do this is put God in the relationship and go, okay, God, what are you doing? And God goes, guess what? Without him, without her, without that friend, without that person in your life, you would be a total mess. And I have them there for your growth and your benefit. What? Yeah, why don't you sit and listen for a minute to who I've called into your life? Wow, that's different. So you go from despising or, you know, being frustrated because you're being bound together with someone so different to being able to celebrate who God has you in relationship with, truly celebrating it. Now, I'll tell you something right here. If you have a hard time with this and if you're thinking, how am I going to celebrate? You know, that's a real stretch for me, Bill. I don't know how I'm going to celebrate the differences because there's so many and I just, you don't know my relationship. There's, it's just apples and oranges. It's just opposite sides of the fence all the time. I want you to do one thing. I, I want, if you're a person of faith, I want you to thank God for your spouse. Even if you don't believe it, thank God for them. Whenever they're telling you something that you don't, you're like, that's wrong, that's, that's, I want you to say, God, I don't understand this, but thank you for bringing someone in my life that wouldn't always agree with me. Here, here's the kicker you or I will get into a marriage relationship and complain about how our, you know, we're so different, but you and I would drive ourselves crazy in a relationship. You know what I mean? I mean, if, if, if two people are in a marriage and they're identical in every way, one person is not necessary, you know? What sense does that make? And our differences, we can give God thanks. And so we can do that. We can celebrate the differences, and we can thank God, thank God for the differences. Now, a first step might just be to tolerate the differences that we have with one another, Right? Just to, just to be able to say, OK, I don't get it. and Maybe I'm not celebrating yet, but I, I, I'll, I'll, I'll stand for it. <laughs> I'll let it happen. But I hope that we're going to move towards this place of celebrating and of going. I mean, just think about the difference in your marriage. If you could be like, wow, can you believe I get to be married to you? Wow, how cool is it? Because I would have never thought that way. And I know some of you are going, oh, this is fantasy land. We're going to get into the harder work of this and, and how it kind of comes around, this place of celebrating our life together, celebrating the differences and how God has made us. But I hope that we can start there. I hope we can start there. Now, lest you think this is only for marriages, I'll tell you, um, I'll tell you a, 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 something that kind of transcends marriage, any situation, right? There's kind of two major categories of people. There's mourning people and not mourning people. <laughs> I want to talk to the not warning people for a minute. God made them that way. Okay. And so you can be around someone who's a morning person. And if you're not a morning person, that is the hardest thing. You know, it's like 6 a.m. I watched a video um, that the Krabby shot out in uh, Colorado of Pastor Corey rolling into a room full of sleepy kids at 6 in the morning after like two hours of sleep, playing his guitar and singing a good morning song. Hey, good morning! And the kids are like, oh my goodness. In that moment, you can say, God, thank you for making morning people. I don't know what I'd do without him. I'd probably sleep in. (laughs) The same is true for the other way around. You see, it's not just in our marriages, but it's in any difference. We can really, if we're frustrated, if we're being controlled, we can say, God, thank you for making people like that. Because somehow together, we become more than we are apart. So that's the first thing in God-centered marriages. is we can begin to celebrate differences. And we can't really do that without God at the center because if we don't believe that he's in it, then we go, they're disposable. We can throw them out. We don't need them anymore. We don't need that voice in the room. We don't need to hear what they have to say. We don't need to listen to them and engage them as full human beings that you've created. But you see, if we believe God is in the picture, we have to listen. And we have to celebrate the differences that he's made in us. All right. So the second thing that we're going to talk about is that, um, and this has got to do with uh, celebrating differences, is that you and I have to learn to discipline our emotions. Discipline our emotions together. Now, I'm going to throw out some broad categories this morning and I'm not going to say this is going to be true for everybody, every person, okay? But I'm going to throw out these broad categories just so I'm going to talk about two specific emotions that we need to really get control of in our our marriages and our relationships and our life, right? This is like, just about being human. And um, the first is this. We have to learn, in a God-oriented marriage, we have to discipline our anger. Learn to discipline our anger. Now, the word discipline means to learn, right? I, I was thinking about control, but it's more than that. It's about teaching it, you know, teaching ourselves to respond appropriately. And I would say that mostly this is for guys, you know, because guys, you know, we we talk, we have more aggression, and we have this testosterone thing happening, and we just, you know, sometimes when you're a guy, it just feels good to fight. I know it's probably true for women, too, but it just, you know, guys, it's like visceral. You know, we just get into it. We don't even know why we're fighting anymore. We're just down with fighting. It's cool. Look, we'll go. And, but there's something about our anger that we need to learn to be disciplined in that will really change our relationships. I want to share a proverb with you, a couple of proverbs, actually. This first one is Proverbs 29, 11. And it says, fools give vent to their rage, but the wise bring calm in the end. Fools give full vent to their rage. That's what God says. I love the Proverbs for guys because it's these kind of short little things that you can can stick in your mind, you can stick in your heart, you can put in your dash, you can put it somewhere where you can read it. Because this is a good thing to remember, that God actually says that if you're giving full vent to your rage, that's your kind of controlled anger, that you're a fool. And then God says, this is written by Solomon, the wisest man ever lived, he says, but wise men bring calm in the end. You see, there's a difference here in who we're called to be. Learning to discipline our anger. Second proverb, just a little bit later, same chapter, 22, or 29 verse 22, it says this, an angry person stirs up conflict and a hot-tempered person commits many sins. You know there's a link between letting our anger rule us and sinning. And when we're talking about sinning here, we don't mean sinning against the person that's across the table only. Because you know David, when he gets before God, he says, "Against you and you alone have I sinned," Father. Now if you look at David's life, he sinned against a lot of people. But when David gets it in his heart what he's really done, he says, "It's only you I've sinned against." Ultimately, it's you, my creator, my God. And David knows it, and he says so in the Psalms. And God says here in Proverbs that an angry person stirs up conflict everywhere. You're constantly churning it, you know, you're just. And, and I want to, again, say that this is something that I struggle with. And so I'm not up here saying, oh, look at me. I'm like, you know, all calm. I mean, there's that, that visceral anger in me that I have to learn to discipline by the grace of Jesus Christ. But I think it's something we're called to do, especially as men. An angry person stirs up conflict, and a hot-tempered, hot-tempered person stirs up many sins. Paul, uh, later on, actually says in Ephesians, he says, um, um, do not sin when you're angry. So, I mean, Paul in the New Testament says, this is the problem for you. You're going to get mad, but don't go on sinning in your anger. Proverbs, a long time before, said that an angry person will commit many sins. And this one here from the, gospel, or the book of James. James is the uh, brother of Jesus, the half-brother of Jesus, as it were. And uh, he wrote this epistle called uh, James in the back of the New Testament. But he says this, My dear brothers, be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Right? Quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. This is words to the disciples of Jesus Christ. Look what he says, though. Because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. I see if we claim that we're a follower of the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, this is our goal in life, is to lead a righteous life. And here James says, human anger does not produce righteousness. They're unrelated. And I think sometimes as guys, you know, I, that, this is, again, I'll, I'll keep hitting on guys here, but it's kind of a guy problem that we say, you know what, I'm angry, and I'm going to set it right. I'm going to control the situation. I'm going to put people in their place, and I'm going to make it work. And James says, no, brothers, human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. What does? You see what he says? Quick to listen, slow to speak. And slow to anger. You know, those three steps right there could absolutely transform our lives. Just those three. If there's, what are my next steps this week? Right there. If you have an issue with anger, quick to listen. Keep on listening. Keep on listening. Fight the urge to tell them how it is. Slow to speak. And even slower to become angry. See, in a God-centered relationship, we can do these things because we have some fundamental understanding that God is in the middle of it. That even in that moment where you just feel like you're going to blow and you just feel all that, that natural, I mean, like nature roll, based anger coming up in you that you can just go, this is not going to honor God. And you can do what Paul says, take every thought captive and you can say, I'm going I'm to discipline this in the name of Jesus Christ. I'm going to let God do something different. Now, this again might sound like wishy-washy, you know, like how do you do that? That's great. But man, that doesn't sound like any way I can do it. I want to say this to you. If, uh, if, if you're a, a person who is um, a following Jesus, you can pray in that moment. You can pray. I would say this, you can pray as you count to 10. You know, we've heard the whole thing, count to 10, but count to 10 don't work if when you get to 10, you're right where you were when you started at one. I'm just madder because I've been counting for 10, you know? But if you can sit there and you can be like, and I don't know why for me, I'm just going to confess (laughs) on some things, nothing major, but you know, at the dinner table, it's the hardest thing because it's just chaos. We're trying to have a meal together as a family and it seems like we can't ever get five people to sit down. Right? It's like impossible. And there's just moments where I just go like, okay. And I don't do this very well, but you just go, okay, I'm going to pray. Not like, you know, oh, you know. But just like, because God knows what you're doing. You can just keep watching people like crazy in your house and be like, okay, God, what are you doing? One. They're going to sit down? Two. (laughs) You know what I mean? And, And hopefully by the time you get to 10, God will have changed your heart. And you'll be quick to listen and slow to speak and slower to become angry very practical thing you can do count to ten and pray pray that God would move in your heart in a situation God what are you doing here by the way I'll remind you something sometimes we say anger comes out you know we think about anger being physical with guys but um, Gary Smalley who's a great kind of um, teacher on marriage and counselor to married couples says words hurt as bad as physical violence that we can become skilled with our tongue James says control your tongue for end all kinds of evil you see quick to speak can be sinful so we can control our tongue words heard ask God for new understanding all right so the second one here and I'm gonna lay this morning ladies but these aren't absolutely categories to be seen women can become angry men can become fearful so that's not absolute but I do want to share some things on fear because the first to control our emotion or the first thing to discipline our emotions is anger I would say um, big need we have in our marriages the second is to discipline our fear discipline our fear I want to share again from Proverbs a couple of passages on fear and what this looks like. The first is from Proverbs twenty nine, twenty-five, and it says this fear of man will prove to be a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord, Yahweh, is kept safe. I want you to see what the uh, the Proverbs are saying here. They're setting up this kind of dichotomy, two different things. Fear of man versus trust in the Lord, You see, we talked about having a marriage centered around God, and that's what we're talking about here. And that's saying that there's this enemy of trusting God, which is this fear of men. Now, this isn't written only to marriages, obviously, and not written only to women, obviously. But it means that there's this reality that if you or I are constantly afraid of what's going to happen in our relationship, what's going to happen with the other person in our life, it's going to prove to be a trap for us. And you know what a trap is? A snare. It's something you get stuck in. You can't get out of it. And the more you wiggle, the tighter it gets because this is what fear does. It traps you and holds you there. You're terrified. You're afraid. God says, that proves to be a trap. But whoever trusts in the Lord is kept safe. You see, no traps in trusting in God. You can trust fully in God regardless of your situation. Second passage is from Proverbs 28, verse 1. It says this, and this is a great passage of Scripture as well. You can just stick this in your mind, hide it in your heart. A great way to kind of become a disciple of Jesus is to begin to memorize the truths that he teaches. And this is from Proverbs. It says, the wicked flee, though no one pursues, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. Now, this one may not seem to be exactly related to fear, but I want to tell you why. Because what happens a lot of times is that we get suspicious in our marriages. We begin to get fearful Oh, what's that person? You begin to get paranoid if you can't trust people. And you begin to think up, and what the proverb says is that wicked, that means people who don't, aren't, aren't righteous, flee, though no one is chasing you. That this fear trap can become so ensnaring that you become paranoid and terrified, and you're constantly running from things that aren't there. You're constantly making accusations that aren't there. You're constantly seeing gremlins in the bush that simply aren't there. And the Proverbs say that, that the, those who flee, though no one pursues, are wicked. But the righteous are bold as a lion. It means they come straight up. Now, how, does a, how is a lion bold? You ever seen a lion, like, in the wild? You know? They're not bold, like, walking up, like, poking the chest. They just walk with confidence. Why? Because they're the biggest cat in the jungle. Right? They just walk around. They're not, like, they're not like talking trash. They're just being real. And that's what God says about the righteous. The righteous are just authentic. They're who they are. They walk around confident. Why? Because they have this God-centered relationship, and they can trust in him. They aren't going to run away from things that aren't there. I'll share with you one of the best verses on fear, and it's related to love exactly. And it says this. This is from the uh, first, uh, first letter of John. And it says, there is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear, because fear has to do with punishment. Listen to what he says. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. Now, this is another book that's written to the church. But I will argue again, I will say again, I'll make the case that uh, husbands and wives who believe in Jesus Christ are part of the church. And here's what the word says. There is no fear in love. But love drives out fear. In fact, perfect love, that would be the love of Jesus Christ, drives out fear in our lives because fear is with punishment. And the one who fears is not made perfect, not made perfect in love. So some, um, some, some practical things that, um, that we can do with this is we can just take these promises and say, this is, I know this says that fear is an enemy of love, so I'm not going to let my life be ruled by fear anymore. I'm not going to walk around terrified all the time. I'm going to trust God and my relationship. And in the same way that we talked about the husband or the wife, if that's the case for you, anger is an issue, who's sitting there and praying counting the 10, we can feel that fear come up in our lives. And we can, be, we can admit to God, I am afraid of what this means. I'm afraid of what this looks like. But then we can choose to press on, to take steps forward, trusting in God and not men trusting in what he's going to reveal and not what we're afraid of happening. And so here's what I would say, that we can be courageous and we can continue to go forward in spite of our fear. That we can choose to be courageous and trusting in God's love. In that same way, and those feelings come up the same way, that fight or flight thing, right? We talk about that that reflex we have. We can choose to be disciplined in our emotions and continue to walk forward in spite of of our fear. That's called being courageous. We can, we can pray and ask God to break the cycle that we have. Because fear begets fear, begets fear, begets fear. And we don't need to be trapped because we're children of God. Now, the last passage I want to share with you is actually what Jesus said, Jesus himself. And this is on fear. And, and there is a, a, right, a righteous uh, a fear that we have. And uh, this is for guys... And girls, oh, I think I passed it up. I'm just going to read it to you here. It's from uh, the Gospel of Matthew. I'm going to turn there right quick. Matthew 10. Oh, I wish I had that verse. That's such a bummer to me that we don't have it. Because what it says is, it says, "I will tell you who to fear," uh, and that's getting, that's going ahead. So I know that's not it. That's not it. All right, but this is what it says. It says, "Do not fear man who can kill the body, but instead fear the one." who, after the body is dead, can condemn your soul to hell, right? Now, that sounds like harsh words, and you go, oh, Jesus, what are you talking about? Why do you say something like that? But what he's saying is that if we have a fear, a holy reverence, we should not be putting it on men around us. We shouldn't be afraid of other men, but we should only be in fear, meaning holy reverence for God himself, because he's the only one that can ultimately judge us in a way that matters, and that's a big deal in our lives because we feel like we can be judged by fellow men, and that's how we live our lives. Oh, don't, don't, you know, I don't want them, I want them to think well of me. But Jesus himself says, don't live your life like that. Instead, fear the one who can condemn you for eternity. That, that's, that's what we're called to do. So when I say disciplining our emotions, especially our fear, I mean in that way, discipling ourselves to, tr- to know and trust God in everything and to have respect have fear for him and what he can ultimately do in our lives. All right. Now, the, th- the third and last thing we're going to talk about today is, and this is what we get to um, in our lives, because you go, okay, we're talking about celebrating our differences and displaying our emotions, but here's the reality, that we have to learn to forgive our failures. We have to learn to forgive our failures. And so we're going to, actually, I told you last week we're going to turn back to this. We talked about divorce a few weeks ago, and um, I told you we'd be coming to this passage. This is Matthew 18, and this is a great passage if you have an issue of forgiveness in your life, because if, you can't, if we can't learn to forgive one another, if we can't learn to um, uh, tolerate our differences and begin to celebrate our differences and forgive one another when we offend each other, because we certainly will, right, um, then you're going to have a pretty rough relationship. You're going to have a pretty bad time together. And so I find it interesting that we talked about divorce a few weeks ago, and Right before talking about divorce, I mentioned to you that Jesus talked about forgiveness, right? So I want you to see that the conversation about forgiveness leads right into a conversation about divorce for Jesus and his teaching. So if you turn to Matthew 18, verse 21, if you haven't already, I'm going to read that with you. So Jesus answers this question. I'm going to actually start in 21. It says, Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times? You may have heard this before. And Jesus says, I tell you the truth, not seven times, but 77 times, or seven times 70, which is like, what, 490 times? Not that he's saying that's legally true. But there was this known... Understanding that in the Jewish faith, that if someone was a sin against you, you had to forgive them seven times for the same thing. Keep forgiving, keep forgiving. But you came to a point where you no longer had to forgive. And whenever Jesus talks about. By the way, we're going to talk here in a minute, too, about this kind of bringing accountability to one another. But he says, he says, uh, you ha- how many times do we have to do this? Peter asked Jesus. And Jesus says, not seven times, but 77 times, or seven times 70. He's saying, you have to forgive a whole bunch. And Jesus tells this story. I want you to hear the parable that he explains this through. He says, Jesus is therefore... For this reason, in other words, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wants to settle accounts with his servants. And as he began to make settlement, a man that owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. Since the man was not able to pay, the master ordered that he, listen, his wife and his children... And everything that he had would be sold off to pay for his debt. Now, think about that for a minute. You come, you have a bill you can't pay, not only are you getting sold in slavery, your wife is sold in slavery, your kids are sold in slavery, and your flat screen has been sold to the guy down the street. You've got nothing left, absolutely nothing left. But at this moment, the servant fell on his knees before the king and cried, Be patient with me, and I will pay back everything. Now, the servant's master, listen, took pity, had mercy. On him and canceled his debt completely and let him go free. It's a big deal. Not just free for you, free for your wife, free for your kids, free with your stuff. The king canceled all the debt. But when that servant went out, he found one of a fellow servants who owed him 100 denarii and he grabbed, that's a very little amount of money compared to the 10,000 talents, and he grabbed the servant and began choking the life out of him and said, pay back everything you owe me. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, please be patient with me, and I will pay you back everything. But this person refused. And instead, he went off, and he had this man thrown into prison until he could pay every penny that he owed. When the other servants saw what happened, they were greatly distressed, and they went, and they told the master everything that had happened. And the master then called the servant back in, and he said this, you wicked servant, I canceled all the debt of yours because you begged for it. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant in the same way that I had mercy on you? In anger, his master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back everything that he owed. And Jesus said these words, this is how my heavenly father will treat each one of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. Wow. So when we talk about celebrating our difference and things like that. We're talking about... Um, learning to forgive one another. And this isn't like an option, you know. It's, it's like you have to do these things. And if you have a hard time, and I know people who do, and people say, but you don't know what they did. You don't know how they acted. But I do know this. I know what Jesus Christ did to forgive you. I know what God has done to forgive you. And when you start to see this big picture in a God-centered marriage, you start to go, Lord, if you forgive me all of this, I can forgive this person. The passage actually says that if we don't forgive that way, we will be held to account for everything we owe, every sin we bear. And that's a terrifying place to be. So we have to learn to forgive one another. Now, the forgiveness comes at the end of this idea of of being confronted. I won't back up to it, but Matthew 18 is known as a discipline passage because it says, if someone has sinned against you, go and confront them personally. So I want you to see that there's this confrontation, there's a confession, and there's forgiveness. But we're to be forgiving people. And so I don't want to lay it off like, well, until they're sorry, you don't have to forgive them. That's not what Jesus teaches. He says you forgive. We always forgive. And so if our marriage is going to be God's, we have to learn to forgive one another for our failures. And this is divine work, this kind of... Uh, Uh, A marriage It's divine work among us. So today, I'm just going to ask you to join me in prayer over these things. I don't pretend from all we can do any of this, celebrate differences or, um, you know, um, uh, control or discipline our emotions or learn to forgive one another all on our own. Because I believe without God, it's impossible to do these things. But today, if there's something in particular you struggle with, uh, I would challenge you to sit on that and dwell on it if there was a particular passage that struck you and you're like, what was that one about fear? What was that one about anger? I would encourage you to memorize it and put it in your heart so that when you face those things, you can, have a, you can be ready for the battle, right? Because ultimately what we're trying to do is become better followers of Jesus and more glorifying and, and, and to his name and becoming more like him. And so that's our goal in this whole series of love and marriage is to love better and to really live these things out in our lives. So I'm going to ask you to join me in prayer. We're going to have one final song, but uh, I'm just going to, we're going to invite God into our situations. Uh, Father God, we've come today to, to learn more about you and to hear what you have to say for us from your word. And Lord, to be honest, it feels like a very tall order because we, can, we just feel like it's just too much. It's hard, too hard to face. Uh, we screw up too much ourselves, let alone how others seem to injure us without meaning to. But today we ask that you would come into our lives. And Father, if if we have a heart of unforgiveness and we know we've been forgiven by you, we pray that you would help us through that, that we could have some real understanding today of how offensive we have been to you. And in that place, we can find a way to forgive other people who've offended us. Pray, Father God, that we would become the kind of people who are free in you, free of our debt, free of our sin, and that we can become those who would celebrate what you're doing in the world. May your uh, Holy Spirit be known to us. May we be willing to walk through the hard times. May we be willing to be honest with one another when we have to be, so that we could grow in our likeness to you. And today, Father God, I pray that first and foremost that if there's anyone here that doesn't know this forgiveness, that doesn't know that there's nothing that we have done that you will not forgive, that today they would know that reality in their heart, that you would teach them that fact, that they are forgiven in Jesus Christ. So today we give you praise and glory for that truth. We pray you continue to disciple us and grow us as your followers. And uh, we'll leave it all to you and we'll see you on the journey, Father you would show us the way. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.